Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. What if our best intended efforts to protect our children's health were found to be instead one of the primary causes of today's rise in chronic illness? Our guest today, Dr. Maya Shetreet Klein, believes that is the case. Dr. Shetreet Klein is an integrative pediatric neurologist with a medical degree from Albert Einstein College of Medicine where she was awarded the Edward Paddow Award for Excellence in Pediatrics and graduated with a special distinction in research in child neurology for her original work on autism. Dr. Shetreet Klein completed the University of Arizona's two-year fellowship in integrative medicine founded by Andrew Weil and is now a member of its faculty. She teaches nationally and internationally at conferences, both for physicians and laypeople, on children's health, autism, integrative medicine, and nutrition, toxins, and neurological health. And she's here today to talk about her new book, The Dirt Cure, a book Dr. Andrew Weil says will turn the prevailing paradigm on its head, one that shows parents how to keep kids healthy by allowing them exposure to microbes. Welcome, Dr. Sheetreet Klein. Thank you for having me. So you begin the dirt cure with the idea that the nat- the national obsession with oversanitation has is one of the main causes of the rise in chronic illness in children. C- can you explain this theory to us? Sure. Well, the, first I'll say what dirt means in this context. Dirt is microbes or germs. It's healthy food from um, from un- from a healthy soil. And it's spending time outdoors in nature. And what we've done um, in many ways is sort of sanitized our lives and sanitized the lives of children um, by, first of all, you know, we, we intervene whenever children have infections. We don't really allow for supporting the body and for convalescing. We sanitize our homes with bleach and our, you know, we have hand sanitizers in every school. Um, in every classroom, and we sanitize their food with pesticides. And um, keeping them indoors so much more than they used to be, a lot of times in schools now, recess is much shorter. Um, A lot of times kids are actually forbidden recess if one child will misbehave. Um, They're having less PE time and so much more screen time. So in all these different ways, Children are just not immersed in the kind of biodiverse uh, dirt that their immune systems, their brains, um, and even their guts really need in order to be healthy. Can you point us to some of the some of the suggestive science around um, this hypothesis? What are some of the things that people are finding that um, that show us that either using too much hand sanitizer or perhaps too much antibiotics or too much pesticides is is leading to um, uh, the rise in childhood illness? Sure. Um, you know, for one thing, I just I'll use bleach as an example. Um, we have this idea that, you know, using, using bleach means we're cleaner and therefore we're going to be healthier. But there was a large study done in Europe last year, and it showed that uh, children who um, live in homes or attend schools where bleach is used regularly actually had 20% higher risk of getting the flu or having chronic cough or other illnesses during the winter. Um, so very interesting because 
you know, what we perceived was actually kind of the opposite of what was really happening. Um, we also know that um, children who, uh, so we, I think a lot of people have heard of the hygiene hypothesis, right, that children who live on farms have fewer allergic uh, illnesses, allergies, eczema, asthma, etc. And um, so they said, well, this is probably because they're dirtier and um, there's more microbes. So what was interesting was that some researchers said, well, let's compare um, the group of, a group of kids um, in an urban apartment and in, on a farm. And it turned out that the number of microbes was actually pretty similar, but what was different was the diversity so when there are many types of microbes, we respond um, and our immune systems respond in a much more resilient way and are less likely to develop all these different conditions, which are chronic. You know, so it used to be that um, a child would get sick and have a convalescence and then recover. And now what we're seeing is a lot of children are getting sick, getting a little better, getting sick, getting a little better. And they're kind of in these chronic cycles. So it turns out that it looks from all the research and the growing research that the more uh, microbial and nutritional biodiversity, the more our bodies respond in healthy ways. So you mentioned that that people who live in the city, they're not exposed to less microbes than on the farm, just less diverse uh, variety of microbes. And you mentioned earlier about... about um, soil and contact with soil. And I'm assuming, I'm presuming that if, if we're eating food that comes from soil that doesn't have a very diverse um, microbial life, that perhaps that's also part of the problem. Is that, is that true? Well, yeah, because it's sort of interesting. This idea of the dirt cure actually works for plants. Um, plants, part of what's very nutritious about plants, I mean, we think about you know, we think about macronutrients and we think about especially micronutrients like, you know, uh, minerals and vitamins. And, um, and what we often don't think about are phytonutrients, um, which are the things that make cranberries red or, um, you know, bananas yellow or even coffee bitter. Okay, so all of these sort of phytonutrients are what really give us a lot of um, the flavor and appearance of, uh, of the fruit and vegetables we eat. So those exist as the immune system of the plant. And, you know, for example, um, you know, when there's actually more biodiverse microbes in the soil um, or, and even pests, it stimulates the plant to produce more of these phytonutrients to protect it. And those phytonutrients go into our body and have been shown to have impact on everything from um, preventing cancer, to reducing risk of asthma, to improving cognition and brain plasticity. So um, very dramatic things can change in our bodies when we're exposed to higher amounts of those plant phytonutrients, which are high when there's microbial diversity in the soil. What's also interesting is that the microbes from soil themselves impact us. So there's a microbe called Mycobacterium vacai. And when we're exposed to it through little cuts in our hands, through um, inhaling it, or even obviously through get, eating it with our food, or if we're 
um, you know, playing outside and then eat something. Um, it actually boosts serotonin levels in the brain to a similar degree as uh, uh, SSRI antidepressants like Zoloft or Prozac. And in studies, they found in animal studies that the animals were able to perform complex mazes in half the time and with less anxiety when they were exposed to this microbe. So is there a way when people are looking for food, what sort of um, situation should they be looking for to find plants that are higher in phytonutrients and to also plants that are um, grown in a microbial diverse environment? Yeah, I think the, um, the, the most nutrient-dense plants actually are probably foraged, um, meaning wild plants, and people can actually find those kinds of things in their own yards, sometimes like dandelion greens, um, which are pretty ubiquitous all over the country. Um, so that's you know, actually probably the most phytonutrient-dense food because nobody's really helping it. And so it's really tough, you know what I mean, in terms of its immune system, very resilient. But um, for people who are not as interested in doing that, um, they can go to farmer's markets where uh, very often they're going to find actually foraged foods, but also um, lots of fresh options that are not power-washed or coated in waxes or other chemicals that often um, the foods we find in supermarkets could be. Um, looking for organic foods because pesticides are obviously influencing the soil microbial content um, and the kind of pests that these plants might actually see and respond to and become healthier um, from. And, um, you know, if you are shopping in a store looking for biodynamic is actually, um, you know, or permaculture raised uh, are some of the methods of farming that are actually very clearly focused on being custodians of soil and really nourishing the soil. So those are some suggestions. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Health Watch, and we're talking today to Dr. Maya Shetreet Klein, the author of The Dirt Cure, Growing Healthy Kids with Food Straight from Soil. Well, you mentioned that um, the tougher plants, the plants that are having uh, to fend uh, because of this, the, the diversity of microbes and potentially with pests have a higher nutrient value. But you also talk about how some infections are, are potentially good for children in terms of developing an, a resilient immune system. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that for us? Sure. I think we're learning a lot very quickly right now um, in this regard because, you know, even if we're talking about, first of all, just getting a fever, um, you know, people get very panicked when their children have fevers, and sometimes that's with good reason. If you have a newborn, if you have an immunosuppressed child, um, or if your child looks very toxic, you know, looks sick. And um, so in these cases, you want to get them checked out right away. Um, but many times, you know, you'll take your child to the doctor and they'll say, oh, it's a virus. Um, and parents feel they need to really suppress the fever. And um, part of what they're doing when they suppress the fever is actually suppressing the whole immune inflammatory response um, as well. And 
some of the anti-fever medications have actually um, been shown to cause or be linked to, let's say, I wouldn't say cause, but be linked to other kinds of chronic illness. Tylenol has been linked to um, developing asthma, for instance, um, and obviously also carries a risk of having liver issues. And um, ibuprofen actually has risks related to heart disease. Um, so we're kind of focusing on those things and suppressing the immune system and not allowing children to kind of um, just to support their bodies and allowing their immune systems to learn for next time, um, which makes them stronger. We're also learning now that certain illnesses um, like uh, mumps, for instance, which used to be pretty ubiquitous, actually uh, seems to reduce the risk of developing ovarian cancer by about half later in life. Um, and uh, and so it's, this is sort of an interesting phenomenon because we've thought that viruses were um, unequivocally bad. And now we're learning that there could be, there are other kinds of examples like that where measles is actually being used now as an oncolytic uh, to kill cancer quite effectively, actually, and very difficult to, to treat. Um, cancers like glioblastoma multiforme and pancreatic cancer. So I think we're kind of starting to um, reframe what we've been thinking about bacterial infections, about viruses. It doesn't mean that these are all great all the time, obviously. Um, but, you know, it might be a more nuanced story than we originally thought. Well, if it is, if it is indeed more nuanced and complex, how, how do you coach your patients when you know, on the one hand there may be these benefits, on the other hand we also know that people do die of the flu or from the measles or or occasionally from unpasteurized juice, for instance. Um, how do you how do you walk that line of the danger of infection and and the health benefits of one? Well, I think that there are clearly many cases where we can support the body. And, you know, I think the, um, that actually having a really nutrient-dense diet and being exposed to lots of microbes, <clears throat> both through, um, through food and through having small illnesses, uh, does strengthen the immune system. But um, I also think, you know, that uh, right now the science is very much in flux. So, you know, I try to assess, uh, I try to assess that with the families. Um, I do think, you know, that in general, because the science is changing so quickly, um, we really have to be assessing, reassessing, and reassessing again the kinds of practices that we're recommending. Um, but, you know, I don't think that there's a – I don't think that, you know, I would be making one blanket recommendation right? Um, because it's, it's a very fast-changing science right now. Can you talk about some of the science and some of the um, stuff you discuss in the Dirt Cure about the importance of children being outside, being in nature, in contact with animals, uh, and, and otherwise? Yeah, absolutely. In um, so, in several studies that have been done looking at children spending time in natural settings, um, it's shown that children actually have. Um, better performance on standardized tests when they've spent time outdoors in green space um, during the day of their, during their school day. Um, 
There are also a lot of studies looking at uh, children who are on more natural playgrounds versus less natural playgrounds, and again, showing that they're calmer, that they're happier, that they're more focused, um, and actually more creative in the classroom. So uh, there are some fascinating studies also coming from Japan um, about something called Shinrin-yoku, which is translated to forest bathing. And what it is is essentially immersing yourself in the beauty of the forest. And they use this there as a preventive medicine. It's actually prescribed to patients. And so it's been well studied. And what's been found there is, again, people sleep better. Their cortisol levels are lower, so they're less stressed. Um, They're happier. They have better mood and um, better focus including executive function, and they have lower inflammatory markers and higher anti-cancer protein. So there are so many ways that nature is actually kind of reaching into our bodies and influencing um, everything from our immune system to our brain. Mm. Well, talk to us a little bit more about the diet that you propose in the Dirt Cure. What what are some of the the premier foods that that are, are part of the diet? Well, one of the things that I wanted to do with the book was, you know, I feel like there's always something coming up saying, you know, almonds are good. No, almonds are horrible, you know, and everything seems to be one day good, one day bad. And I think what um, I wanted to kind of give people a little bit of a bird's eye view as well as a lot of tips and kind of hands-on information um, just so that they could not have to kind of go which way the wind blows every other day and have a sense that the the key is to eat diverse, fresh foods that are as unprocessed as possible. And that's really the key, knowing where it comes from as well um, and knowing, and knowing um, you know, like where the animals are, com- are coming from, how they're raised and how things are processed. Um, and so I give a lot of information about that. Um, one of the key things, especially for animal products, is that they should be raised in the way they're meant to be, which is outdoors on pasture. Um, so one of the one of the things I recommend highly are eggs, especially uh, with the yolks. We've had a kind of national uh, demonization of cholesterol and uh, and actually, it turns out it was not really well-founded in terms of it being a problem related to eggs. And so people who eat about five eggs a week live longer than people who eat under one egg, you know, one egg or less per week. Um, and cholesterol is actually so critical in the developing brain that um, there are special enzymes in breast milk that help to um, break it down and absorb it. So, and in the brain, actually, although it's only 3% of body mass, it has about 25% of the body's cholesterol. Mm. So um, eggs, I think, are critical. And and, uh, also they have choline, which is another uh, element very important for uh, brain development and memory. And... um, I have parents who come to me still and say, oh, well, 
we only do egg white omelets. So, you know, I always say yolks are like liquid gold and that, you know, it should be very, uh, it should be part of, part of every child's diet. Um, another thing I recommend are bitters. So that sounds, I think, to a lot of parents, like not something their children would eat, but bitters are actually found in dark chocolate. They're found in chamomile tea and some other teas. They're found in uh, fruit and vegetable peels. So, you know, a lot of parents will peel the apple, but actually those bitter compounds, slightly bitter in the apple peel, um, are doing all kinds of things in the body to promote health, including um, stimulating gut motility. So that helps with things like heartburn, helps with things like constipation, bloating, gas. Um, it also uh, stimulates um, stomach acid so that it helps us to break down um, and digest our food better. It stimulates the digestive immune system, which is helpful to prevent things like gastroenteritis and like those vomiting, diarrhea, dreaded infections. And interestingly, we don't just have all of these bitter receptors throughout the digestive tract, um, but we also have it on the pancreas, so it helps stabilize blood sugar levels. And it's in the ear, nose, throat, and lungs. So bitters actually stimulate the immune system there, which prevent things like flu and, you know, colds. And it's actually being looked at now as a treatment for asthma. Hmm. And you, you walk people through uh, in the dirt cure a way to, to help figure out what kids might be allergic to, food allergies being one of the things that have risen over the years in incidents among children. What is your preferred method of, of figuring out food allergies? Yeah, that's a great question because, um, you know, it can be really challenging. I think a lot of people, um, a lot of people will do, you know, blood tests or skin tests, um, you know, with doctors. But I think sometimes um, it's possible to look at what a child's eating. And I would say just I want to make a comment that there's no test that is 100% to help determine if a child has an allergy or a sensitivity, particularly a sensitivity. We're not very good at detecting that. So we're reasonable at, at finding out about allergies, and I always recommend looking in the blood, um, not just skin. Um, and we're reasonable about being able to find, uh, to detect celiac, which is an autoimmune condition, uh, where people react to, to gliadin or, you know, gluten, uh, an element of gluten. But um, sometimes there are, kids will eat one particular food very obsessively, and paradoxically that can sometimes be a food that bothers them. So if they have, you know, let's say eczema, chronic constipation or asthma, um, or they had reflux as a baby, or they have chronic ear infections, I often will look to dairy products, um, as a likely culprit, particularly if that child is pretty dairy obsessed. And uh, that would be like cheese and milk and yogurt and ice cream. Um, and uh, so what I always recommend if we're you know, going to be investigating in this way is to really do an 100% elimination for one month. And it should only be a trial because we don't want to remove foods that are perfectly healthy for someone and that are not causing issues for them. 
uh, particularly children, because they need, you know, as I said, diverse foods that are nutrient-dense. So um, one month should always give enough information. Um, and if parents don't notice a change, then reintroducing it for a weekend and then looking, you know, stopping and kind of seeing if anything uh, flares is the other element. So elimination for one month and then reintroduction. Um, and that's really the way that I recommend um, detecting uh, food reactivity. Um, and I talk about in the book as well some of the more significant um, kinds of reactivities that might not be specifically allergy. Um, but, you know, there are some cases where children really don't tolerate grains well. And um, that is usually in more severe conditions. For instance, um, Crohn's disease, where they are investigating actually at, um, I think, Seattle Children's now, um, you know, the SCD-specific carbohydrate diet, which is fairly grain-free um, for Crohn's disease in children. Hmm. And you had an experience with your own son and his asthma uh, that had a link to, ended up having a link to food in the end, didn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, my my son had, you know, been developing pretty nicely. He had reacted a little bit to dairy. You know, he was a breastfed baby, but because I was working occasionally, he was supplemented uh, with formula. And when he was supplemented with dairy formula, he had, you know, like gas and seemed uncomfortable. So um, we, we gave him uh, a supplement of soy formula, which he seemed to tolerate. And then around a year of age... Um, he started to break out in rashes and started to have actually on his first birthday um, these episodes of breathing problems, um, which appeared as asthma. And um, he was, he, we spent 10 months of him being sick, basically almost all the time. So he might be like, well, for a few days, then he would have a runny nose, then he would start kind of with these asthma-like symptoms. And um, the medication didn't really help him very much, um, and our doctor was giving him, you know, really what he gave for kids in these situations, which was a combination of steroids and antibiotics, which um, in the end, I believe, actually made him quite a bit sicker. Um, what we recognized about 10 months out, um, when I was kind of realizing nobody had answers and people just felt, said, you know, Oh, he's just kind of a reactive kid. This is the way it's going to be, um, was we needed to figure out if he was reacting to a food. And indeed, I finally was able to find a doctor who would do, they just did regular skin testing as allergists do and found he was severely allergic to soy, which he'd been getting um, at that point in the form of soy milk um, because he was older. And when we stopped the soy, all soy in his diet, um, Within three days, he stopped having any breathing issues. Hmm. And do you have a website you can point our listeners to or other resources on online? Yeah, my website is uh, actually dirtcure.com. And, um, you know, I have there a lot of um, information and, you know, more that I'm adding about different aspects of the book. Um, and I'm also uh, on Facebook and Twitter and posting lots of uh, current scientific articles and other information about, you know, things like 
um, fracking and what's happening with GMO labeling and um, a lot of the other issues that I think we often don't link to um, directly, at least to children's health problems or our health problems, but um, are definitely part of the picture as well. Well, it was a pleasure having you on Health Watch today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. We're talking today to author and pediatric neurologist Maya Shetreet Klein about her latest book, The Dirt Cure, Growing Healthy Kids from Food Straight from Soil. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host.